Happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship this morning. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians again in chapter 2. And this morning, we're covering sort of part 2 of that 16-verse block that opens the chapter. Remember, we said that Paul has set out to make the argument that his ministry among the Thessalonians, not just his ministry, him and Timothy and Silas, when I refer to Paul as the author of this book, I'm referring to all of them, just so you know. Uh, he, he wants the Thessalonians to know that their ministry among them was not in vain. And part one of his argument is that their motivation ultimately was not to please the Thessalonians, but to please God. And therefore, their ministry was not in vain because it was pleasing to God. They carried it out faithfully. Now we are entering into part two, the second reason that he is laying out that their ministry was not in vain. And it is this, that the Thessalonians have received the message that they preached, not as the words of men, but as it really is, the word of God. God's word produced the desired effect in the Thessalonians. And is at work in them. That's Paul's argument. And it's important we know contextually he hasn't left behind what he started in chapter 1. He is still seeking to encourage them while he is giving thanks for them. See, all the way back in verse 2 of chapter 1, he, he's saying, We give thanks for you all constantly or without ceasing because we know that you are loved by God and chosen by God. And he says, because of how the word came to you. And he's filling that out in chapter 2. How it's produced fruit in you. How it rings out from you. Such that you are an example to all the churches in the surrounding area. And so that's sort of the setting that we are in. And the main idea of this passage before we read it together this morning is this. What I want to encourage you to do, I guess. Is to be like the Thessalonians. Receive the word of God, not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God. That's what I believe God is calling us to do from this passage this morning. Would you stand in the honor of reading God's holy, perfect, and inerrant word together? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. And we also thank God without ceasing for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. Yet wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of of the Lord. May he carve its eternal truth on our hearts. Would you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word. We thank you that when we hear your word proclaimed, we hear not the voice of a mere man, but your voice. And we know that your voice is over the waters. That you, the God of glory, thunder. That your voice is powerful and full of majesty. That your voice breaks the cedars. It breaks the cedars of Lebanon. That your voice makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. Your voice, O Lord, flashes forth flames of fire. Your voice, O Lord, shakes the wilderness. It is your voice, O Lord, that makes the deer give birth, that causes oaks to shake and strips the forest bare. It is your voice that call, cause all to cry, glory. Lord, we pray that your word would be faithfully taught this morning such that we would not hear the voice of a mere man, but your voice. Help us to receive this word as your word to us. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Let's start with verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you had heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Paul, Silas, and Timothy took the message of the gospel, took God's word to the Thessalonians. And their claim here is that their message was not just men speaking, but their message was actually filled up with God's own voice. This is quite spectacular. Have you ever thought about that? That when God's word is rightly taught, we are hearing from God himself. When God's word is faithfully preached, it ought to come to us and land upon us with all the authority and force and weight as if God himself were speaking to us. So if you've ever wondered, why preaching? Right? Why do we gather together Lord's Day after Lord's Day, and devote so much time to preaching at the center of our life together. You know, if you ever thought, why don't we just, during this time, have a large group conversation? Or a panel discussion? Or instead of a lengthy sermon, why don't we have something in the pattern of a TED Talk? You know, a couple inspiring stories, a quick lesson. We all just sort of bebop out of here happily. 18 minutes tops. Because everybody knows nobody can pay attention to anything longer than 18 minutes. Unless you're watching Netflix or football or doing something you otherwise enjoy. But preaching, definitely we can't pay attention for longer than 18 minutes. So why, why preaching? We could do, we could do TED Talk. We, we could do drama. That would be really exciting. We have, we have screens in here. We, we could put up films. You know, there's some good ones out there. Maybe a little Lord of the Rings on a Sunday. Inspire us to stand against Morador. 
Why preaching? It's, it's here in verse 13. Because when God's word is rightly preached, we do not hear the words of mere men, but the voice of God, the word of God. And it is God's word that has always made God's people. You understand that? From Genesis 1, God has always made his people and his world by his word. Genesis 1, and God said, let there be. The call of Abraham in Genesis 12, go to the land I am showing you. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars. All the way down through Ezekiel 37 in the valley of dry bones. The Lord tells him to speak to the dry bones and say, Oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. The bones come to life. On down into John chapter 1, when Jesus is introduced to us as the word made flesh who dwells among us. We go to Romans 1, and the word of God, the gospel of God, is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And of course, 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Preaching God's word makes God's people. It is God's word that we hear that enables us to come to faith in Christ. By his word, his people are saved. And by his word, his people are strengthened. We are made by the word of God. And so when God's word is rightly preached, we hear from God himself. Is that how you come to this service? Ready to hear from God himself. Do you come with that kind of expectation and hope? And do you prepare Saturday night and Sunday morning? You read the passage and pray that you might hear what God has to say to you? Do you come with a sense of the weight and the gravity of what is happening here? can't help but think of the Israelites gathered at Mount Sinai. Remember, the mountain is cloaked in smoke. There's the sound of trumpets. Lightning is flashing and the people's legs are wobbling. And God speaks his words, the ten words, and then they, they cry out, Moses, make him stop. You talk to us instead because if God keeps speaking, we will die. Do we come before God with that sort of holy reverence? Do we come before God on Sunday morning knowing that Jesus Christ has brought to us the words of life? There's nowhere else that we can go to be satisfied. Do you come to Sunday morning with a sense of gravity and gladness, with a sense of expectation that God is speaking here when his people are gathered? Or do you sort of Sip on your coffee on the way over and saunter in casually and sit and look at your watch and just wait for it to be over. 
Friends, I pray that we would come to grips with the reality of what God says is happening when we open this book. We hear from him. And of course, we're not going to remember every word from every sermon. I mean, I I can't do that. I don't remember what I preached three weeks ago, okay? You go, so how does it have value? It has value, right? I don't remember every word of every conversation that I've had with my wife. But those conversations have value. They've made our relationship. I don't remember every meal that I've ever eaten. But they have made me. Those meals have sustained me. And there's a few of them that are really landmark meals. Some really good ones where, you know, the steak was perfect. There have been some pretty bad ones that still have made me. Actually, I made the bad meal. I made Chelsea an awesome grilled cheese one time, burnt the outside, put it in the microwave to melt the cheese on the inside. Seemed like a good idea. Unforgettable! The Lord uses even bad sermons and imperfect preachers to make his people. He works through his word. And it is important that we recognize it is God who is working. The authority that comes from this pulpit does not come from me or from any man. It comes from God's word. So only to the extent that the one proclaiming the Bible, only to the extent that they do that faithfully, is it binding on us. Therefore, we must be good Bereans and test these things with the word. We don't want to ever make the mistake of wrapping up what happens in the worship hour, what happens in the sermon, inside of a person's personality. I think sometimes as churches, we are, we are tempted to build the life of our church on anything and everything other than just the faithful, ordinary proclamation of God's word. I mean, and I get the temptation. I can look around the room and I see creative people, smart people, even see a few good-looking people. You know, I think together, we could really do some. We could come up with some great strategies and plans for the growth of the gospel, for, for the building of the church, but it's not that those things are bad things, it's that they're dangerous things. Because if we put our hope in our own strategies and methodologies, and we begin building, building, building apart from the word of God, it's not the church that we are building. It is a monument to ourselves. Unless the Lord builds the house, its laborers labor in vain. We want to make sure that we don't fall prey to the temptation to trust in somebody's charisma or personality or great ideas or the things we can do together corporately. We want to make sure that we trust in the word of God. Because it's only the word of God that never comes up empty. I sort of buried this connection last week because I wanted to bring it up this week. But if you look at verse 1 here of chapter 2, Paul says, You yourselves, brothers, know that our coming to you was not in vain. The word there for vain means empty or, or void. He's saying it, it, it produced what we wanted it to produce. It wasn't without result. But if you think of that word vain or empty and just hold it in your mind for a second and allow me to read to you a passage that you know. 
Isaiah chapter 55, starting in verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me void or empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Paul wants us to make that connection. He's saying, we preached the word to you, and it's gone down into your hearts. And it's grown up and produced the fruit that it was intended to produce. You have received it as the word of God. It has not failed, Thessalonians. In First Baptist, God's word will not fail us. We must trust him. We must trust his plans, and we must never depart from listening to his voice. And so once more this morning, I want to reiterate what we talked about in chapter 1, which is this. We want to be a church that preaches Christ, receives Christ, and rings out with Christ. A church that preaches God's word, receives God's word, and rings out with God's word because God's word is at work in us. That's the second part of verse 13 I want you to to see there. You received it for what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The word is at work in them. And so he gives our attention to one of the ways he sees the word working out in their lives. Verse 14. Because you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. You see what Paul is making this comparison for? He wants the Thessalonians to know that they are not suffering alone. That their suffering and the persecution that they are enduring is not the consequence of faulty faith on their part. Quite the contrary. He wants them to know that their faith is genuine. That they really have heard the voice of God. That it really has produced a work of God in their lives. And the result is the persecution. So these true Judean churches that are far away from you, they have experienced the same kind of persecution. You are real. You guys really do know Jesus. He's going back to verse 4 and 5 again, right? He's proving this point. He's giving thanks for their conversion, and he's letting them know what he knows, verse 4, chapter 1, that they are loved by God, that God has chosen them. That the gospel really has come to them and their faith is as real and legitimate as those churches of Christ in Judea and they should be strengthened and encouraged. And so Paul is giving thanks and he's encouraging again and again and again. He wants to build up this body of Christ in Thessalonica. He says, don't be discouraged. You you are like them. We, We are suffering. We are being opposed So he's encouraged them, right? God's word came to you. It was faithfully taught. You received it as the word of God. 
and it's at work in you as you endure persecution. It's at work in you, back in verse 3 of chapter 1, I see your work of faith, I see your labor of love, I see your steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's at work in you. And, and Paul turns here, and it's almost like a digression, but I think it has a purpose. It's going to set up things that come later in the letter. But he starts talking about the justice of God coming to those who oppose the preaching of the word of God. And he means this justice of God to be an encouragement, to lift them up. As they patiently endure evil, Paul wants to lift their spirits by telling them, keep fighting, because Jesus Christ reigns. He will end evil. That's what he says. That's what he's going to say in these next few verses, and and I want to caveat, I want to make clear here, Paul is saying these things not because he is anti-Semitic. He's saying them because he is anti-sin. This is what he says. You suffered the same things from your own countrymen, your own fellow citizens, as these other churches did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. Remember, they were driven out of Thessalonica by persecution, a mob made of Jews and Gentiles. Drove us out and displeased God. A little contrast there back at the beginning of the chapter in verse 4. We speak not to please men, but to please God. Now he's talking of people that do not please God. They displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. When the Thessalonians received the word of God... It was proof that they were children of God. And the same principle works in reverse. Those who reject the word of God prove themselves sons of Satan. And so they hinder the preaching of God's word. You'll you'll see later in verse 18, Paul is talking of travel plans. And he says, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. Those who reject the word of the Lord are in league with Satan. They hate the word of God, and they seek to hinder its proclamation. They hate the word of God because they hate God. Jesus told us that the world would hate him It did hate him and would hate his followers and seek to hinder them. Remember what he says in John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you, before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore... The world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. 
Those who hate the preaching of God's Word, those who hate the church, do so because ultimately they hate Christ. And notice this. To hate Christ, to hate the proclamation of His Word, is to oppose all mankind. Did you see that? I think oftentimes those who seek, particularly then and now, I guess, those who seek to silence the preaching of God's word, oftentimes they do so under this false belief that they're doing it out of love. When we're really tolerant and we're open-minded, and so we want to shut down this bigotry taught by Christianity. We don't want them to speak. I mean, you've seen this uh, even overseas, right? We don't even want them to pray. And they think that they're doing something that is loving to their fellow man. But here's the irony. When you silence the preaching of God's word, it is opposition to man. Because there is no other name by which you can be saved except for the name of Christ Jesus. And if the word of God is not preached, if the name of Christ is not proclaimed, there is no way by which mankind can be saved. And so when we are seeing the silencing of the preaching of God's word, we are seeing a sentencing of all those who are in sinful rebellion against God to eternal punishment in hell. To stop the preaching of God's word is hatred toward all mankind. It is opposition. The world hates Christ and so opposes the preaching of Christ. But as I thought about, about this, I did find myself a little bit troubled. As I began wondering, how do we who have God's word, hinder its preaching in our own lives, in our homes, in our churches, and in our communities. And do you come on Sunday morning with your ears plugged, hinder the word, not ready to hear it? Maybe you hinder it in your home. Maybe you hinder your family from hearing the gospel because you make good things a priority on the Lord's day instead of gathering together with God's people. I always say you want to know where your heart really is. Think about how you love to spend your time on Sunday morning. You're hindering your family from hearing God's word. Are we hindering our community from hearing God's word because we value our own comfort over and above sharing Christ with them? Maybe we could ask it this way. If our countrymen, if our fellow citizens wanted to hinder the preaching of God's word, would they need to persecute First Baptist Church of Waynesboro? 
those who oppose all of mankind hinder the preaching of the word of God. It is only the proclamation of God's word that can save God's people. Paul outlines those who hate Christ, who seek to hinder the word. He's bringing to the fore the confrontation that exists in Thessalonica. And now, I told you we were going to get to that note of encouragement on judgment, didn't I? Now it comes. This is what he says. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. It's tricky to translate that what comes across as at last. It could be wrath comes upon them completely. Wrath comes upon them forever. Wrath comes upon them until the end. Some folks think it, it means a, that he uses a, a prophetic aorist, it's called. I'm not a buyer on this, but, but they basically say that Paul writes in such a way as to cast this wrath out into the future only. Other people argue that Paul has a cataclysmic event that has come upon the Jews, maybe an expulsion from Rome or a famine. He has this in mind, wrath has come on them already. But, just from a theological standpoint, we know that God's wrath comes upon his enemies both in this life and the life to come, right? There's already and not yet to it, just like our own salvation, right? Right now, uh, we are saved. We are being saved, and we will be saved, right? We enjoy a relationship with God now already, and then we will enjoy it to the max. And I think the same thing applies to God's wrath against his enemies. Think of Romans 1. His wrath is being revealed. Those who are opposed to God are under God's wrath right now and will be even more fully when Christ returns to establish his kingdom. And Paul wants this to be an encouragement. See, one of the things he says here, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, saying there's a limit to how much they can persecute you before God is going to act. And he already has begun acting. Made me think of Genesis 15, 16. Remember, uh, the Lord makes a covenant with Abraham there. The animals are all cut in half and Abraham falls asleep. Smoking pot between the animals. It's it's a really neat chapter. But one of the things he says is, you're going to go up into the promised land, but not yet. Not yet. Your, Your progeny will go into the promised land once The sins of the Amalekites, not Amalekites, Amorites is full. Let me just read it. Verse 15 of Genesis 15. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Because the iniquity, the sins of the Amorites is not yet full. Is not yet complete. Has not yet reached its full measure. You see, Paul wants them to know that God pays off his promises, that justice will come. He is coming in this life, and it is to come in the next. He wants them to know they can endure because God's wrath is coming. 
They will be victorious. Even though their blood is poured out, even though they are slandered, victory is coming. I think we often, when considering God's holy wrath and justice, we get squeamish in our culture. Many of us, even now, are a little uncomfortable. See Paul's tone that he seems to be celebrating God's wrath. And we go, "Uh." it is a luxury belief to think that God doesn't really need to punish evil. That we shouldn't really long for the return of Christ and the vanquishing of all his foes. And it's a luxury belief that we can have because we live in a land that is so prosperous. But it is one the scriptures call us to abandon. We ought not clutch our pearls when we read through the imprecatory psalms as we have the last couple Sundays. No, we ought to recognize we are to both pray for the conversion of God's enemies and for the crushing of God's enemies. Both at the same time, we ought to be a people that long for justice. Right? We preach Christ because we love mankind. We're for mankind. We pray that Christ would bring destruction to the wicked because we love God. We love that which is true and good and beautiful. It is right for us to see the horrors of evil and to cry out with the psalmists, How long, O Lord? It is right for us when confronted with evil to pray psalms like Psalm 58. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When they aim their arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Like a stillborn child who will never see the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may the wicked be swept away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. The fact that there is a God who judges on earth ought to inspire us unto faithfulness in the midst of persecution, in the midst of evil, in the midst of hardship. We look to the end knowing that Jesus Christ brings his kingdom in perfect peace. And he does so by defeating the enemy. Sometimes he defeats the enemy by way of conversion. And other times he defeats the enemy by crushing the enemy. We who love God ought not shrink back from praying for the conversion of the world and for the justice of God to come into the world. The Bible calls us to do both. I mean, you want to you want a right now example? I'm sure many of you have thought of it already. The atrocities that have been happening in Israel, 
as the terrorist group Hamas has come in. Sure, some of you have watched videos on your phone as wicked men have live-streamed the torturing of older men and younger women. They've kidnapped children, beheaded babies. If your response to that is, eh, rather than, how long, O Lord, break their teeth in their mouths, bring your vengeance, end evil, then you have failed to understand the God of justice. You have failed to understand the love of God. We ought to be a people who pray that God would defeat the wicked by way of conversion or that he would utterly destroy them. Sometimes Jesus defeats evil men by converting them and sometimes it's by destroying them. Either way, we ought to pray for it. We should be asking Jesus to be victorious over evil in our world. Here's the point. God's judgment, both present and to come, gives God's people hope. Evil will not endure forever. There is a God who judges justly on the earth, and the righteous will rejoice as he establishes his kingdom. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Hallelujah! This truth gives us hope. The darkness shall not last. The light of the world has been born. And the darkness shall not overcome it. This truth gives hope to us who are in Christ. <laughs> and it summons those who are outside of Christ to find his mercy. So you think about these things that I've, I've laid out for you here, that Paul has laid out for you here, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, who drove us out, who displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking, hindering the speaking of the gospel. And you just lay out those character qualities, and who does that remind you of? I'll take answers. Somebody, we can be open. Anybody in mind? Nobody's brave this morning. Paul! Paul! Paul himself, a Jew, who opposed the preaching of God's word. What does the scripture say? Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that great day a persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul, speaking of himself in Acts chapter 26, starting in verse 8, he's testifying now, he's been converted, he's before King Agrippa, and he says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I love that line. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, 
I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light A light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul, who opposed all mankind by hindering the preaching of the gospel, Oh, he was made into perhaps the greatest preacher of the gospel. I think this is why he writes in 1 Timothy 1.15. This saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. So that in me, As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. My non-Christian friend, God's wrath is coming. It is rightly aimed against you. You are evil. You are a child of Satan, a child of the darkness, because you do not live your life according to God's word. You do not trust in God's son, and that sets you at loggerheads with him. He will treat you as the treasonous criminal you are. He will punish you justly according to your sins. But there is good news. God makes his people by his word. By his word that's preached to you this morning. This is the good news. Jesus Christ died on the cross, bloodied beneath the wrath of God towards sins, so that when sinners like you, non-Christian, repent of their sins and come to Christ and say, Jesus, you are my Lord now. I forgive. I forget my sin. I I hate my sin. I I love you. I need you. Make me right. That when you do that, when you put your faith in Christ, he saves you. 
All your sins are credited to Jesus and have been dealt with and are crushed such that there's no condemnation left for you, no wrath left for you. Jesus has drunk the cup of God's wrath toward those who he will redeem all the way down to the dregs. There's not a drop left such that when you trust in Christ, you don't have to know God as judge anymore. Only as loving Father. Now, Christian, repent and believe today. Talk to somebody about it. Consider Christ. Church, the whole context of our section this morning is thanksgiving. Paul is giving thanks for the Thessalonians. His ministry wasn't in vain because the word was proclaimed among them. And because it was received by them, not as the word of man, but as it really is, the word of God. This should cause us as a church to have occasion to give thanks for First Baptist Church of Waynesboro. This is a church where the word is preached, where it is received, and where it is at work. So maybe a final point of application as we get ready to close this week. As you go throughout your week and throughout the rest of today, look for evidences of grace in the lives of your fellow Christians. Try to catch one another doing good. And then pull each other aside and say, brother, sister, I see what God is doing in you here. You're growing in gentleness. I thank God for you. I see how you have been serving in this area where nobody else wants to serve. But I want you to know God sees. And I see. His word is at work in you, sister. We want to be a church that has our eyes wide open to how God's word is at work among us. Because if we shut our eyes to the graces of God among us, we will turn into grumblers Ain't nobody like grumblers. Let's be a thankful people. Let's give thanks for our church and for the word of God. And let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us, for choosing us, for giving the gospel to us, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Pray that you would continue to help us to receive your word and that you would continue to work in us by your word through your Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.